Anyway, in our psalm, here Psalm 3, it describes a condition, uh, a condition that is common to believers, and that is um, what we're calling this morning spiritual depression. So our psalm describes a condition that is common to believers, and that's spiritual depression. And it has many causes, um, and one particular to this psalm, but it's generally a severe discouragement and an inability to hope or to take courage in the Lord. And given how many times this sort of thing appears in the Psalms, here and in the next Psalm, and then on and on as we go, it's not all that uncommon. It's something that believers face quite regularly. Um, It in fact seems to be a feature of the spiritual life. Not merely a coincidence of this broken world, but a stage even, or a season that we go through on the way to spiritual maturity. Now on the one hand, it's inevitable that our courage and our conviction would be dampened, and in some cases even broken in this age, constantly assaulted as we are by the flesh and the world, and the devil. Now, on the other hand, it seems that God has a purpose in this, to refine and to deepen and to build his people. What our enemies conspire to destroy us, God inverts and brings about our glory and his Good And so this condition, spiritual depression, arises from very many things, but again, God is at work in it. And in our psalm, it arises from the malicious insinuation of others. It arises from words that are intended to eat away at one's confidence. Listen now to the opening two verses. It says, O Lord... How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul. So many are saying this about David. There is no deliverance for him in God. Now, we um, are not left guessing about the historical circumstance behind the psalm. It opens with a superscription. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, it comes to us from a situation of great pain and betrayal. Not only does the king flee a military coup against his life, but that at the hands of his own son, his nation, his friends, and even his own flesh and blood have turned against him, except for a loyal few. And that accounts for the particular despondency of the psalm. Now, we know David is no stranger to adverse circumstances. He cut his teeth on this kind of thing. He, he was so familiar with trial and, and temptation, and he knew how to handle it. Now, what he is a stranger to is this searing personal element. Here in Psalm 3 is a disgraced king, a man bereaved 
of his dignity and royal honor. The people that used to sing his praises, David has slain his tens of thousands, now are ready to drag him from his throne. Thus he flees. He leaves Jerusalem. And the scriptures say in Second Samuel that he wept as he went. So there goes David. And naturally, what comes with his disposed status, the people instead choosing Absalom, is their own tearing words against him. Many are saying of my soul, he recounts, there is no deliverance for him in God. So in other words, this very human revolt is given a theological interpretation. God stands behind these events, the people tell him. It's God and not merely the people who have turned against the king. Thus, for David, there is nowhere to turn. There's no help to be found. There is no deliverance for him in God. Now, Shimei, if you're familiar with the Second Samuel story, is a spokesman for the people. It's recorded that as the king was fleeing from Jerusalem, he caught him. And he was up on a hill and he shouted down at David. And this is what he said, 2 Samuel 16, verses 7 through 8. Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul and whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. So as stout-hearted as the king was, and surely he was a courageous man, he could not stand before such words. And the reason is because David's courage was God. I mean, certainly David was just naturally brave, but his courage was God. And what happens? Put yourself in those shoes for a moment. What happens when the one whom you put all your trust in, the one whom you staked everything up upon, what happens when there is no deliverance for him in God? Right? One's heart melts at the thought. Valor and confidence evacuate the body. And this, right, that experience is what we're calling spiritual depression. The sickening insinuation that one is forsaken, cast aside, and ultimately forgotten by God. Again, there are those words, there is no deliverance for him in God. Now, though the king situation is foreign to us, um, that word, there is no deliverance for him and God is not, right? I doubt, severely doubt, there is one in here who has not at some point been taunted by those words, who have not felt that I don't have quite the words to describe it, but that anguish, I guess, in the soul. And it's a common word. And it comes to us in our sin and in 
adverse circumstances. We stumble and fall, and something says to us, there is no deliverance. Things begin to crumble, and hardship comes, and again, there is the same word. There is no deliverance. Now, a shimei might not be shouting us down, but a more subtle and harder-to-identify voice speaks to us. And it slips through our defenses, and it spills through the cracks and crevices of our hearts, eating away at our confidence as it goes like some sort of acid. And the soul becomes sick, hearing those words again and again and again. A depression and a despondency settles over the soul. And in that situation, one is easy pickings, right? They're, they're, they're out in the open for the taking. In fact, in such a situation, the work is already done. Without confidence or with confidence flees any dynamism to the soul. Its energy goes away. A symptom of spiritual depression is spiritual lethargy, and one comes on the heels of the other, right? The will to be and the will to do is gone. Now, because in this condition, one cannot muster up the confidence that God is on their side, right? That he is going to deliver and rescue them. They quite understandably cannot be moved to act, at least with any energy, Without the expectation of success, a person is cast back upon themselves and the soul sinks further into despondency. The will which invigorates the body and compels action is broken. And at best, such a one can only drudge along without lasting joy or victory. So, with spiritual depression comes this Spiritual lethargy, just just sliding further and further into despondency and inactivity. But the other symptom of spiritual depression is uh, a lack, or or, or this lack of confidence rather, is a, uh, a spiritual anxiety. Now, something to understand about the spiritual life is that God's favor, right, the assurance that God is on your side is the foundation of the soul's health. It's the foundation of spiritual health. And apart from that, right, that conviction that God is with you, the soul has no ground to rest upon. It's left exposed and vulnerable like our first parents in the garden. And so it's anxious and it's afraid and it's easily disturbed. Without confidence in God's favor, one sinks into inactivity and lifelessness, and the other becomes frantic and panic-stricken about their life. Because heaped upon the uncertainty of the world is the greater, more unnerving uncertainty of God, and where one stands relative to Him. There is no deliverance or the secret words that drive one's actions and reactions. And it seems that King David was of this kind, 
rather than the other. He cannot sleep. He cannot rest because it all rests upon him. The man of cool confidence, that inspired confidence in others, is here reduced to a scavenger, gleaning hope from where it cannot be found. And such are some of us, bereaved of confidence, either in the doldrums of lethargy or the hyperactivity of anxiety. And as there are many roads outside a jungle, there are many roads outside spiritual depression. But one, and possibly the first step in all roads, is to recognize where that poisonous voice comes from, rather who it comes from. And without deviation, such speech, that voice that says there is no deliverance for him or her in God, without deviation, such speech always originates in Satan, the father of lies, whose very name means accuser and adversary. It is his special business to strangle our confidence in God, to destroy our faith. Remember our Lord's words the night that Peter betrayed him. This is Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Satan's intention is to sift us. And what does that mean? Well, it means to separate one from their faith. To push it from their heart. And he does so through this insinuating and lying voice. There is no deliverance. Thus, one's journey to spiritual health, right? The road back to a place of confidence begins with the recognition that that voice which nags at you, which eats away at your conviction, is not from above. That it does not originate in God, but it is from below. And it indeed remains oppressive, And we remain vulnerable to that voice, but with the understanding that it's not God's voice. That it's not He who is saying that to you. The worst of it is over. Slowly, one can put up their defenses again, and that ground that the soul needs is restored beneath their feet. You see, Satan's game is imitation. His game is imitation to parody and plagiarize God. He, the apostle tells us, disguises himself as an angel of light. So in this case, he comes to us in his own venomous voice, but he masks it as God's. And one who is untrained to know the difference, what the voice of God sounds like, what the voice of God how it rings true in our hearts to that of Satan. Without that, one is quickly deceived, and their faith is either altogether destroyed or it's bent and malformed, and it doesn't function properly. 
So if that insidious, weakening word is not from God, then what is? What word does God speak to the spiritually depressed? Look now at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. So these true words wash over the soul and bring comfort. But even then, the enemy does not let up. David can say these things, he seems to suggest. But what makes you think that you can? Right? What makes you think that you can say, you are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head? And then one begins to remember their sin and their disobedience. And then one begins to believe and to think that these words are not for them, but they apply to others only. Again, Satan would seem to say God is in those things, or is those things rather, but not for you, not in your compromised situation. Thus he buries the truth under still more lies. Right? Yeah, God is those things, but, but you're a sinner, right? You, you, you don't apply in the situation. Well, what then? How do we respond? Well, consider the king as we find him declaring these words. This is David, not at the height of his powers, but at nearly the lowest point of his kingship. He is not innocent in the matter. In some respects, this trouble, the revolt of his own son against him, has come as the consequence of his own sin. David murdered Uriah, and he took Bathsheba as his wife. And as consequence for his great sin, God said to him, that the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. So those who speak against him, Shimei's words from the hill and the voice we find here in the psalm, they have a credibility to their words. Otherwise, it would have just bounced right off David. If he were at the peak of his powers, what is there to fear? It's nonsense. But there's some plausibility here. And in fact, it seems they have more plausibility and more credibility on their side than even David has on his. And that makes his confession all the more radical. In fact, almost impossible. How can David say these words without presumption, without speaking falsely? Indeed, how can any of us claim God as our shield and our glory and the one who lifts our head, being as we are sinners? On what grounds can we assert our confidence? Haven't we sinned God's favor away? Haven't we, haven't we forfeited this blessing? So whatever basis it is, 
it's not one in which we find in ourselves. It's not our own righteousness or obedience or merit. In fact, far from it. Where then does it come from? Again, look at the psalm, verse 3. But you, the king says, but you. In other words, his confidence in God comes from nothing else and no one else but God. It's a confidence rooted solely in God's own nature, who he eternally and unchangeably is. It's not rooted in his own integrity. That's gone. It's not rooted in his favorable circumstances. Those days are past. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is rooted entirely in God, his character, and particularly his faithfulness. Second Timothy 2.13 reads, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God is not one who can go back on his word. God is not one who can say one thing and do another. Who can be turned away from his promises. Our confidence is founded upon the fact that God is God and that there are certain things that he cannot do. Namely, he cannot lie. He cannot breach trust because he cannot deny himself. He is faithful. And though we go off into unfaithfulness, he cannot nor wills not to go back on his. Again, put simply, God cannot be, cannot be unfaithful. He cannot make a breach upon his own nature. He cannot be other than what he is. And he does not go away. And if one seeks grounds for confidence within themselves, they will not find it there. Only more deception and illusion more shaky ground which crumbles in time. But if one presses deeper, past themselves, indeed past this world, that one will find bedrock. They'll find the faithfulness that holds this universe in existence. A faithfulness so strong, a faithfulness so fixed upon them for their good that it's almost terrifying. A faithfulness so titanic in proportion that it's beyond telling. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So, from God's infinite faithfulness issues forth our Christ, and he silences the voice of the accuser once for all. As the scripture says in 1 John 2, he is our advocate. Jesus Christ is the one who stands with us and for us against our enemy, against the voice that says there is no deliverance. Now it was the accuser, think of Job, who formerly stood in the divine presence, prosecuting our sins and pressing charges against us. But now, 
It is Christ who speaks a better word. His death and resurrection silences the enemy's accusation and pleads our cause before the Father. Romans chapter 8 verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. So Christ sides with us. Against our sin. Against the enemy. And against anyone who would oppose him. Hence, he truly is. He truly is a shield about us. Our glory and the one who lifts our heads. The accuser opposes us. And he says to our soul, there is no deliverance. But Christ says, there is no condemnation. By his death and resurrection, Christ once for all removes insecurity and fear from the soul. And he founds us upon the fixed and immovable favor of God. And thus, in the priesthood of Christ, the soul begins to rally. It finds strength and rest once again. So, therein lies the difference between the two voices. Satan invariably seeks to cast down. That's the always crucial, evident uh, feature of his voice. While God in Christ invariably seeks to lift up. He's the lifter of our heads. Now God's voice may indeed be stern and unyielding. It may come as a warning. It may come as correction. But the unmistakable quality to it is that it is always for our good. There is nothing malicious or poisonous or evil in God's voice. When in fact, that's the only thing that we find in the voice of the enemy. God wills our good and that alone. And so it might sound trite and entirely too simple, but the truth is the way out of spiritual depression, right, this state of broken confidence is to heed the faithful voice and not the enemy's, to be valiant in the truth. The thoughts and ideas that we entertain in our minds are of no small importance. There is a vigilance necessary about the inner life, lest one succumb to the devil's ploy. When he speaks, when he wants to say that there is no deliverance, Say, as the king did, but you, O Lord, but you, right? He rises up against the thought and he defends himself against the lies. As scripture says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Now in this respect, the heart is like a severely uneven table. Whatever is set on it slides right off. Now the truth is an elusive thing. 
it's obvious in itself, but it's quite hard for our unfeeling hearts to hold on to. And the truth, God's unwavering favor for us in Christ must be planted on the heart and held in place against the incline, lest it fall off the table. It needs to be watched over as we unceasingly remind ourselves who God is, what He has done, and what He has promised to do. We hold it in place by saying, But you, O Lord, I know you. I know who you said yourself to be. I've trusted in you. And only thus can the soul proceed with confidence. And only thus can that spell of spiritual depression be broken. So, Having found the ground that it longed for, how does the soul respond? What, in other words, does spiritual health look like? Now the psalm continues, verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. So once frantic and agitated, now the soul is at rest. I slept. I will not be afraid. And this is what an assurance in God's favor does. It does not magically eliminate the trouble. And it does not at once erase the hardship. But it enables one to bear up in the midst of it. And it does so by eliminating fear. A confidence that God is for you, no matter what happens, no matter how severe the happenings, it takes the brunt of the sting away from any situation. Again, consider David. All these people surround him, but what gets him down is the voice that God is not with you. But when God is with him, He says, I'm not going to be afraid. One may not be able to change their situation, but they can certainly turn away the fear of that situation. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So here are two expressions that our confidence in God can take. On the one hand, David sleeps, he rests, and Moses, here in Deuteronomy, commands the people to be courageous. So the panic-stricken soul puts down its work and retires for the night. He gets a good night's sleep with confidence in God, and the... uh, soul that has sunk deep into lethargy, it rises and it puts its shoulder to the plow. Now, some of us, um, we need to sleep, both spiritually and physically. Certainly, don't be negligent, but do have enough confidence in God to rest. It is in vain that you rise up early And go late to rest, the scripture says, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives sleep to his beloved. I lay down, 
I slept and I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. And some of us need to put off our slumbers and get straight away to the work. God rebukes a lethargy induced by unbelief, and he commands us to move forward courageously because he's already promised that he will never fail us or forsake us. So don't be afraid. The victory is yours. Now, and I'd like to draw things to a close here. Whether sleep or activity, it's all made possible by Christ, our Advocate. Indeed, our experience, the one that we have described here in Psalm 3, is not foreign to Christ. He tasted the same bitter waters. He was tempted by the same insidious voice. There is no deliverance for him in God, yet without sin. And it's shown here in our psalm ahead of time, prefigured in the scriptures before its historical occasion. Surely these are David's words, but I think more so they are Christ's words. It is he who is the true author of this psalm. It's his experience that is foretold to us here. There is no deliverance for him in God. Those were the words spoken against Jesus as he hung on the cross. Let him come down. Let let God show up to save him. The same voice tempting Jesus to break his trust, but he could not be broken. He trusted in God, his shield and his glory and the lifter of his head. Indeed, God lifted his son into resurrection life. I lay down and slept, meaning death, and I awoke, for the Lord sustains me, meaning the resurrection from the dead. This psalm is Christ's prayer. And it's Christ's deliverance. And he puts it on our lips and in our hearts because we are in him. So he's taken this road already. And he's come out on the other side. And in so doing, he has taken away all grounds for fear in his death and resurrection. In him, our sins have been blotted out. And there's now peace with God. And as God answered Christ's prayer... So surely he will answer ours. As God is a shield and glory and a lifter of Christ's head, so he is also to us. And communion, the sacrament which Jesus himself instituted, is a sign and a witness to that truth. It is given to us as a means of encouragement, a week in and week out testimony that God is for us. And so as we partake together, right as we culminate our service to commune with our Lord, remember the grace that these elements communicate and let your soul be strengthened. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he gave us his only begotten son, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? So as we Take the elements and as you commune with the Lord, say with the confidence that Christ has won for you, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. So I invite you now to
come up to receive the elements, take them back to your table. And as the music plays, stir up that confidence because it's not false but real. So do that now and I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment.